Welcome to the Coaches Rising podcast. And in today's episode, I'm going to be speaking with Carrie Granger. We've done a couple of podcasts in the past that have been well received. And today we're going to talk about stakeholder leadership. So we'll talk about, well, what is what is stakeholder leadership and why is it so important in these times and what's the zeitgeist of these times that is making more and more people, businesses, open to the idea of a kind of stakeholder capitalist approach. And so that is what we talk about. And well, Carrie Granger is the CEO and founder of the Granger Network, and they are doing a lot of um, coaching and culture and strategy work in in a lot of different companies in the US. And um, Carrie's company's grown fast in the last few years. So um, that's a few words about Carrie. As usual, if you like this podcast, you could share it or you could uh, sign up and be in our community, if that's if that makes you in our community. But you could actually join our mailing list and then you stay in the loop about things we put out which aren't this podcast. So that all being said, let's dive in. Here's the podcast with Carrie Granger. Carrie Granger, welcome to the Coaches Rising podcast. I thought I would try, try a little, you know, smooth little intro there. How are you doing, Carrie? I'm doing really well, Joel, and it's so, 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 so good to be with you. Yeah, yeah, me too. I was, um, yeah, I got a little bit of free coaching from you when we were just checking in there. I really appreciate that. Um, we're going to talk about stakeholder leadership today and what that is. And I think it's really, I was just saying to you before we hit the record button, I think it's a really relevant conversation because of, you know, I'm ex- I'm excited at the moment to explore how the field is evolving, uh, what's the role that coaches are being invited to take and how can we, in a way, like effectively implement change in the world, in companies, you know, so, so this conversation, I think will be part of that. So um let me see where do we begin i actually want to come to this question of um not not in the beginning what is stakeholder leadership but more like what's your journey around this topic been uh you know we talked about how it's continually evolving um could you say like how you how it's come to you why why it's important to you and and like the journey you know of how it's continually evolving speak into that a bit yeah, like the the why? Why is this mm, in a way? Yeah, yeah, that would be probably <laughs> a shorter way to ask the question. Yeah. Um, do you know? Do you know the term Kairos? Yeah, like Kairos and Kronos time. Yeah, like the Greek. Yeah. Yeah, like you know, Kronos being chronological time and Kairos timing. Yeah, like, like the context is shifted, the timing is here, there's an opening for something, yeah? Um, you know, like fra- uh, with, uh, Watson and, and Crick, right? So somebody else discovered DNA nine years before they did, but the kairos wasn't there. Yeah, the timing wasn't there. And I feel that, you, not I feel, you can see that the timing for a shift in business consciousness is here. Yeah. So the move from a shareholder primacy model where businesses exist to increase the profits of their investors and their shareholders, 
that's the whole purpose of a business has been in existence since around the 70s. And it's it's created um, a booming economy, but there's been a real um, hazardous consequence in our environment, um, in, in the equity around the world, um, in, um, in so many places. And, and we've, we've almost had like this hazardous focus on more for more sake, that level of, of that kind of business paradigm. Yeah. You know, more land, more money, more, more, more. And it, and it extends even beyond business. It's like more fame, you know, what is success in this past era? And, and the times are starting to shift. You know, we have a planet on the brink. We have in the, in, in the Western world, we have democracies in many places that are at risk. Um, we have racial inequities that are screaming right now. We have suppressed voices around the world that are no longer willing to be suppressed. And, and there's a Kairos, there's a it, it's shifting. It's an opportunity for us to shift into a model, a consciousness in which we're able to take all stakeholders and create a future in which all stakeholders thrive. Yeah. And so the why for me is an elevation of the consciousness around business. Why, why am I focused on business? How long have nonprofits been focused on this? And they've made some impact, but it's not enough, yeah? And some governments from time to time make policy changes or you know, they lead in declarations, you know, like the Paris Agreement, you know, countries come in and out. Um, but what's been missing up until the last few years is the economic force, which is so strong. So in a way, it's like for the first time, I have hope, you know, when business gets on board that we can shift from a paradigm of our entire reason for existence is to make money for our shareholders to our reason for existence is to create long-term shared value for all stakeholders and that we can create an economic case for that. And here's the thing, Joel, we can. When you look at the data across the board, organizations, companies, for-profit companies that have begun to hold themselves accountable for ESNG, meaning environmental, social governance and data stewardship, and they report on that. You know, they're rated the highest on that. You know, they have made over time, you know, and I'm looking at a five, 10 year horizon, not quarterly, right? But over time they have far exceeded companies that do not measure, report, or account for that. So when I see that, and I've always been about this, our tagline has been, when all stakeholders thrive, profits rise. That's our reason for existence, our raison d'etre for growth, is that if we can intervene in the consciousness of business, in the paradigm of business, 
that it's not just to make more money, but it's to create shared value across the board, we will have done our soul's work here. And the beauty of it is it does increase profit. So I have a daughter, you know, she's seven and a half. And I look towards what's her life going to be like. And it's so easy for me to stick my head in the sand and not look, not feel responsible for, you know, it's too big for me to do anything. I'm never going, it's not me to go lead a nonprofit. It's not me yet anyway, to run for government office. I don't know, could happen in my lifetime, but not right now. So where can I make the most leverage difference, you know, for my daughter and my grandchildren and her grandchildren, right? How can I be a helper and how can I feel good about my work? Well, I can be part of the movement of shifting our paradigm for why a business, a corporation exists. And the Kairos is now. You can see people like Larry Fink from BlackRock. You can see 181 companies at the business roundtable make a stand, declare a movement towards stakeholder capitalism. And then you can see so many examples right now of how we're not there. They're not doing enough. And you can be cynical about that, but let me tell you, how do these examples show up is only in light of a different possibility. If we didn't have that different possibility, you wouldn't see examples contrary to it. I'm excited about what's being created, the conversations, the debates, you know, the new models everywhere. We're beginning to see, well, how, how do you assess if you're doing well? Um, so the why for me is, is, is really for future generations. I might come back here in another lifetime. I don't know how that works yet, but I might, <laughs> right? Yeah, so how, I wanna be a helper and I'm, I'm not going to run a nonprofit for climate change, but I am gonna support organizations to begin to price externalities as part of their value proposition to customers and talent as part of their responsibility to being a business today. Yeah, I feel you. You know, I, I can feel the expression of that why coming through you as you speak. And I am touched by it. And I, I also wonder um, about Kairos. You know, you mentioned Kairos. And I, because if I, if I like look, with a more, you know, with a different lens, you know, through chronological time, uh, then I wonder, like, do we have time or, you know, um, will the, the weight of like that profit first or profit only juggernaut is so strong that I then wonder where will the forces come in that actually change that, you know? Um, but when you talk about Kairos, then I get the sense that, yeah, it's there's something more possible through that through that lens or through that kind of the energy of that, the, the kind of the movement of that into the world. Is that, yeah. is that kind of what you're saying or seeing? Well, yeah, you know, so, so why do I say the word, you know, consciousness or paradigm? 
Yeah. Why, why am I using that? Is because when that shifts, you know, it's, it's not like one person over here taking a stand, you know, and, and if you take a stand before the timing is right, you know, you get shot for taking a stand, right? But the timing is right. People are talking about it. ESG metrics are now being reported, you know, and on Wall Street, on you know, you look on Morning Star. It's like you can you can say who are the ESG companies. I've changed my entire investment strategy. And just tell me, remind us again what ESG is. Yeah. Environmental, social, yeah. governance, and now we add D, data stewardship. Yeah. You know, that's like being a real a responsible business today. You know, you're looking at what's my impact. You see these companies saying we're going to be zero emissions by right, right. and so. So um, when the timing is here, it enables more leaders, more just people, everyday people, like I've shifted my investments, right? I'm, you know, where do I put, where do I choose to put my firm's efforts towards, you know, so more people can take a stand now. So when the, when the paradigm shifts, when the consciousness shifts, and they are a little different, but I'm, you know, we're using that 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 invites it's kind of like a global mind shift hmm. and it it invites new business models it invites new innovations we see and orient towards our world to each other towards silent stakeholders differently we begin to do research like well wait a second it's been an of course in the old model that that, you know, the taking care of communities, taking care of the labor, taking care of the environment is like if you have time and you're a nice person, right? But now when, when our mindset is shifting around this, new research is showing up and it says, actually, it's more profitable. People are more innovative, creative. We're creating better business models. And if you read... Rebecca, oh, what's her name? Reimagining Capitalism. She's got example and firms of endearment. Gosh, I wish, you know, I'll have to look up the names, but those two books, example after example after example of companies that have made this shift and are thriving. Public corporations. Yeah. So, so I have hope you know, for those of us who are willing to begin to act and lead the way and take a stand for a more stakeholder approach, you know, it adds up, it matters. You know, I, uh, Willis Harmon wrote a book, Global Mind Change, I think in the 90s. I'm going to read a quote. Is that okay? Mm -hmm. I don't yeah. know how it goes over on a podcast. We'll, we'll find out. <laughs> we'll find out, yeah. <laughs> yeah. He says, throughout history, the really fundamental changes in societies have come not from dictates of governments and the results of battles, but through vast numbers of people changing their minds, sometimes only a little bit. And he talks about legitimacy. He says, you know, people give legitimacy and they can take it away. A challenge to legitimacy is probably the most powerful force for change to be found in history. 
legitimacy. What are we giving legitimacy to? And you see that in our customers and in our talent. You know, the change is coming bottom up. I have, you know, people in my company, I'm actually going through a merger right now, a very small one. <laughs> and, um, and, and, you know, there's a, almost one of our people coming in, you know, she's almost an avatar for any company, you know, and, and for her, you know, she wants to make a difference in communities. She doesn't want to work for, you know, let's help the big companies make more profit, right? So for her to stay and work, and she's incredible talent, she's got to see that, you know, we're making a difference in her communities. She's got to see that we're also making a difference for her in, in eliminating the inequities across people, you know, she's bringing in this great perspective, but the talent is demanding it. And right now there's a talent shortage, at least in the United States. I'm not sure how that is around the world, but there's a talent shortage. So you've got to have a, you could almost say a value proposition for your talent. And much of the talent is looking for have you handled, not just are you handling, but or could in the future have a promise to, but what is your orientation towards these different stakeholder groups? Um, customers are demanding. They're getting their legitimacy there. Yeah, mm -hmm. customers, who they, who they buy with, who they align themselves with. So Willis says in Global Mind Change, to the empowering principle, that people can withhold legitimacy and thus change the world. Yeah, we now add another by deliberately changing the internal image of reality, people can change the world. Perhaps the only limits to the human mind are those we believe in. So that's why I'm speaking about that elevation of consciousness. If we can see it mm. and we can begin to give legitimacy to it, you know, that's what actually makes big shifts. And that's why I feel that the Kairos is here. We're talking about it. New images start to show up. New innovations start to show up. Mm. There was something you said. I just want to, you said like we've got a shortage of talent. And then you talked about being able to acknowledge all the different stakeholders. Could you say, I didn't quite know what you meant. Like what, what, what kind of talent are we short of or are you short of in the U.S.? Yeah, well, it's, it's, um, there's a lot of different analyses out there of what's causing it. And after the pan, well, we're still in the pandemic, but over the last uh, little bit more than a year and a half, you know, what's happened with um, the workforce in general is that a new possibility started to show up um, where the demand, I mean, it's gone up and down, right? A lot of people lost their jobs and they found out, well, maybe I can survive. Or they started to say, well, I actually want a different quality of life now. I've been at home. I experienced something different. There's been a huge rise in freelancers. And so talent that workforce, the workforce in general, is demanding a different kind of work experience. Mm -hmm. They want to, they want a different level of purpose, you know, plus, by the way, it's not just COVID and the pandemic, but the um, huge rise 
in conversations around racial justice. Yeah, and I'm so grateful for those, you know, just oh, again, an elevation of our consciousness and like an unwillingness to work in, in, in places where, you know, you really cannot survive. It's bad working conditions, etc. So really taking a stand for what I need to thrive as a worker and where I'm willing to work. And because more opportunities right now than people to fit, fill those jobs. The workers have choice. And so that's why a talent shortage. You see it a lot in the frontline workers, like in healthcare, and we work a lot in healthcare, is there's a huge uh, supply sorted, short, a shortage of workforce. Uh, I hate talking about people like supply, but, but in that way, right? They, you know, more jobs than can be filled and and really a talent war even mm. so how are right. you going to compete with that right right and so in a way this, this is related to stakeholder leadership which is you know part of our work is to make promises to really identify who are your primary stakeholders and what are the unique promises that you can make to each of those stakeholders that actually gives you a competitive advantage yeah, so what's the promise you can make to talent that says, oh, the talent says, I see a future with you. And I see that what I fundamentally care about will be addressed better with you than anybody else. Mm -hmm. Right. And part of that is what's your orientation towards, you know, the environment, the labor market, you know, race, uh, diversity, inclusion, um, you know, the communities we serve, suppliers, vendors. So it's part of that, you know, do I get to live my values by identifying and aligning myself with you? It's not just about the money. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah, certainly. I can imagine like when I moved into the workforce myself and I just was like, is this it? You know, like, do I have to work for these companies? Uh, this sucks you know I did like two weeks of training in a call center and then got up and walked out on the last day to the yeah. cheers of the people in the in the team you know and the woman that was doing the training was like you go go for it but I guess what I'm saying is yeah the, wow. the I just didn't feel there was a sense of purpose for me there you know with shared purpose with that company and um I imagine that we'll talk about, so we, in one way, we're talking now about the, the stakeholder of the employees or the, you know, in the company and um, how, how aligned do they feel that company is with who they are. Um, and I imagine we'll talk about some of the elements or the other stakeholders, perhaps. But I'd love to ask you about what you mean by stakeholder leadership in general and, you know, the word leadership, too. It's a word we use a lot. Um, what do we, what do you mean by that? So let's, yeah, let's Open that a little, parse yeah. that out. Yeah. Let's, let's start with just leadership and then we'll add the stakeholder piece. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so I did some work um, maybe 10 years ago, maybe 20, 2007 through maybe 2015, something like that with a group of people. And we really went to examine, you know, what, what is leadership really? You know, if you ask like 
if you just get to the core, what is leadership? And, and you know, the people I was working with, one was a, a economist, a professor emeritus from, from Harvard. Another one was really a deep philosopher and thought leader. Another one was a business uh, consultant. And it was really an eclectic group. I was, at the time, I was a military officer. <laughs> yeah. And, and we looked from a few different perspectives. And many people look at leadership and they start with just the phenomena. In other words, what you can see or what you hear. And, and, and that's most people's conception is they look out and they see something that they attribute, ah, that's leadership, you know? Like, oh, that person's visionary. Visionary must be leadership. Or, wow, that person's really inclusive. Inclusivity must be leadership. And they attribute actions or characteristics to what leadership is. And if you, if you look up on, on, you know, if you look to buy a book on, on Amazon, or if you look up leadership in Google, I don't know, it's probably like 81 billion or something hits on it. We don't know what we're talking about, you know, because when you look at it, everybody can have their own ideas, like sitting in the stands of a, of a basketball game and looking down and you're saying, oh, that's basketball. You throw the ball to another person, but you're not getting at the essential nature of leadership, yeah? So if you, so that's looking at leadership as a phenomenon. But if you look at, well, what is really, you know, leadership is an abstraction, meaning that you can't point to it like I can point to this pen. You know, it's not physical like I can point to or knock on the wall. Yes, and it's, it's, it's an abstraction created in language. It's a linguistic abstraction. And, and why that's important is because linguistic abstractions create realms of possibility. Yeah? It doesn't exist until it's created in language. Like the ancient Greeks created citizen. Citizen didn't exist until it was created in language. And only once it was created, could you say, here's an example of citizen. You know, here's what, it, here's what is included in citizen. Here's what's excluded in citizen. But you couldn't talk about citizen until it was created in language. Yeah. Mm. Leadership is like that. So for example, when I went to, when I was in the military, I went to Kazakhstan. And I went to Kazakhstan. My job was to go to their leadership, their Air Force equivalent academy, and talk to them about creating leaders. Now, I showed up. I was a young captain woman. I was in my 30s, early 30s. And I was with this group of other military, you know, older, higher ranking men. Okay. And they did other things. So we came to the academy, the Air Force Academy in in Kazakhstan. and, And I'm the leadership expert right? And they say, what? This woman who's the lowest ranking officer here? How could she possibly be the leadership expert? Clearly you got that wrong. She's the English professor, right? (laughs) 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 But they just couldn't get it because for them, leadership wasn't a realm of possibility. Leadership was an example. It was a commander. And it turns out they didn't have it in their language. Their equivalent of leadership was commandership. So for them, the only thing that could exist 
was someone with the rank for them. It was a male, you know, highly ranked individual. And you were either born with the leadership capacity or you were not. And that's their entire paradigm. So there was no opportunity to talk to them about growing this capacity of being a leader and exercising leadership effectively, right? So that's what I, they did. They literally didn't have a word for it. They use commandership. Yeah. So leadership as a realm of possibility, you get to the core of that and you can see, well, nothing's excluded and nothing's included. We get to say, you know, from like the core essence, then we begin to put some boundaries around that. And so if you actually get to leadership as a realm of possibility, there's immense freedom. Yeah, so my work with leaders is actually not about put this in and put this in and put this in. It's about take this out, take this out, take this out, take this out, so that you're free to be and free to act. Yeah. Could, could you give an example of that? Because it's it's a powerful distinction mm -hmm. that it opens up a lot of possibility. Um, but could you, yeah, maybe we could ground it in an example where of where you take things out that opens something up. Yeah. So I'll so we'll do it in dialogue. Yeah. So for you, Joel. If you were to, if you, um, if you were to look and you said, okay, I, I got to tell you, here's a scenario and leadership is there. I see leadership. Yeah. What for you must be present for you to call it leadership? Um, that there's a relationship between mm -hmm. the leader and the, I don't want to say followers, but other, other people. Mm -hmm. That there's other a, leaders are, yeah. Mm -hmm. Relationship. So there's other people. Other people are there. Uh huh. Other people. What else? Um, that there is um a, a kind of a, a movement somewhere. A movement so, somewhere. Yeah. So, you know, the the leader might say, "This is the this is the possibility I see," and shall we work together to move towards that possibility, even if that possibilities like that stay here and not do anything mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um so that'd be one thing uh -huh. yeah good so and then you know if i work with someone there'll be you know pages actually yeah and are mm -hmm. there characteristics that for you has to be there for it to be leadership right yeah you want me to keep going yeah. on yeah. yeah um um yeah, uh, so, um, yeah, that's, I, I get to like, does it have to be there? Because even <laughs> other people, yeah, even See, other people, right? Like, oh, gosh, does it have to be there? Yeah, you could just be by yourself and being a leader of yourself. So, um, yeah, and even the idea of movement somewhere, I'm like, you know, um, so, yeah, I don't know if I'm killing it too quickly, but I'm not sure if there's anything else that needs to be there that has to be there for it to be leadership. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, those two are the core ones for me. Like there's, there's just, there's people and there's some kind of shared vision or movement. Um, and then you might say, 
Yeah. Is this, a, is this a measurement? But like there are like levels of effective leadership, perhaps, you know, mm-hmm. and I guess there are a million different ways to speak to that. But perhaps perhaps that points to like that there's some intrinsic goodness or, or value in the leader in terms of they're proposing something that honors the world or people or the movement towards what's good, true and beautiful. You know? mm. Yeah. Like is a leader a person who leads people into um, you know, death and destruction and yeah. Anyway, so that's some things that come to mind. Yeah. And you know, if we if we were to continue to go for a while and you're already starting to say, oh well, maybe not that, you know, what we'll find is that in each of these cases, many times people have received ideas about leadership. Yeah, that limits the scope of how they're able to be and act as a leader in the world. So, you know, for in this example, you know, could you ever think, could you ever think of a time in which leadership occurred and there weren't any other people? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Very quickly. Yeah. yeah. Right. So you don't have to have other people. No. Yeah. And have you ever thought of a time where or could you think of a time in which leadership can occur and there's no existing relationship yeah yeah so you know you yeah. don't have to that either do you right no. and then people will say authenticity i say wow and they'll say you know you have to have passion and and you start to see that for them even to lead in the world it's like okay well how many of those things are you all the time, hmm. you know? And so they start to cut off possibilities. Well, gosh, I'm not authentic all the time and I'm not passionate. I'm not gonna call that leadership. So there's a real opportunity. And then, and then I'll ask, well, what must not be present? Well, you can't lie. Well, have you ever, could you think of a time in which lying was critical to be able to lead people to something true and beautiful? Yeah, I could think of a time, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's like to be able to free yourself of the received ideas and notions and, you know, of what is leadership actually creates a wide open space, a wide open realm that we then can intentionally by choice begin to boundary. Mm. Because that's the part I'm interested in now, because, you know, at the moment is like a via negativa kind of, you know, we're taking out and then. Uh, yeah. something must, that must allow for something. Yeah. So, so then what do you mean by, right? Yeah, exactly. That's my question. Yeah. Yeah. So, and why I want to go this way is because if you get to the essential nature of leadership as a realm of possibility, well, you can invent anything, you know, you're not stuck with inventing and trying to figure. well, is that really leadership or management or uh, like to me, that's just so not exciting and opening. So we start to boundary that. Well, you know, are there foundational aspects we want to put in? Um, and, and when I really look at leadership, I say, ah, if I take it all out and I begin to look at, well, you know, what is it that leadership, what domain does leadership really exist? Well, it exists in the domain of the future. It's not in the past. You know, so if I think, well, what is... 
What domain does leadership exist? It exists in the domain of the future. You know, it creates leadership, not the leader, but leadership creates a future. Well, what kind of future does leadership create? It creates a future that wasn't going to happen anyway. Mm -hmm. Now, there's some kind of like predictable futures is going to happen anyway, right? Like you kind of know how the rest of your evening is going to go a little bit, don't you, Joel? Don't you kind of know how your evening's going to go? Yeah, yeah, yeah. to some extent. Yeah. yeah. You don't need leadership to make it to for that to happen. But if you were to start to create a different, a future that wasn't going to happen already, right? You may need some leadership there. And it's not just any kind of future that isn't going to happen. You know, now I bring in the stakeholder piece. So I get to invent it. Why? Because it's a realm of, it's not already invented. Yeah. So future, so leadership is concerned with, exists in the domain of the future. It creates a future that wasn't going to happen anyway. Which future addresses the fundamental cares of the stakeholders, mm. primary stakeholders. So now I just invented what leadership was. Leadership is the realization. Now I'm taking it to the next level, right? Making real. Leadership is the realization of a future that wasn't going to happen anyway which future addresses the fundamental cares of all stakeholders? Wow. Hmm. Wow. Well, now how does that happen? Now I bring in, now I bring in looking at leadership as a phenomena. What, what do I actually see? If I get on the court, what do I actually see from a leader? I see them, you know, if you went from the basketball game on, in the stands, you went on the court, you, you see a different view. You, walk, you can see the way the basketball is rolling. To, is it rolling towards you or away from you, right? That you see players in, in different positions. So if I get on the court with leadership, what do I see? So I see speaking. I see listening. I see choices. I see practices. So I see speaking, listening, choices, practices, and you might call it mood, emotion, or energy. So these become the tools, the, the, how do I speak and listen, make choices, practice, embody a future that addresses the fundamental cares of all stakeholders. Hmm. Yeah. Now that starts to give me access as a coach, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. I, I was about to say, I feel that opens up a lot of possibility in terms of either being a leader or being a coach who's working with a leader and helping them to do that, you know, how to, to enact that future that serves all the different stakeholders that wasn't possible before. So, yeah. Um, so I can imagine, because I actually, maybe this is, I was going to ask this question a bit later, but do you then... Um, have hold a vision for a kind of um, stakeholder leadership coach, you know, someone that is seeing a leader in this way and helping them to, to, to do that, you know, accomplish it and perhaps expand the, 
the, the territory that a leader is able to um, see or operate within so that they can then, you know, because I imagine for a lot of leaders, it's like, I'm actually, how the hell do I do it? You know, like I've heard about stakeholder capitalism, but, you know, what's it actually look like to do this kind of thing? So, yeah. yeah. Are you training coaches to operate in this way? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we are. And, when, and more so we're training, our coaches are training our clients to operate in this way. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, um, so why did I take the detour in leadership as a linguistic abstraction that creates a realm of possible? Why take that detour? Yeah. Well, there's a real shift between seeing leaders and what's the, what do leaders do? Yeah. And coaching from there to coaching from a future in which the cares of the stakeholders kind of coalesce and emerge. And I couldn't get there if I was stuck on a leader is. Yeah. Because I think, do you see a lot of coaches doing that as well? Uh, stuck on a leader is? Yeah. Yeah, because they're too, they're focused on the leader, not the, not leadership. You know, right. they're focused on, on getting the leader in the right headspace. And what is, what possibilities does the leader see? So it's a real focal on the individual themselves in a way, as contrasted to, you know, if I were, if I were to take, you know, what's one of the things that opens up for me you know, in looking at it from this place is I begin to wonder, I kind of get outside of the individual skin. So I begin to wonder, well, what is it to wake up as an owner of this company? What is it to wake up that way? And what do I care about? And what am I concerned with? And gosh, what is it to wake up as a supplier to this company, what is that? What does that look like from those eyes? And what am I concerned with? And and what do I fundamentally care about? And why am I a stakeholder here? You know, what is it to wake up as one of my employees? Right. So I just my my perspective and looking and orientation and questions shift. You know, I might ask questions like, well, what, what, what does, what does the, what is that, what do the salespeople see in the future that you're creating? You know, leader, what do the salespeople see in the future you're creating? And, and how do they see that their fundamental cares can be addressed? How do they get to make a unique contribution to that future? Is a different question than, okay, well, how might you engage your salespeople? Hmm? And so um, I'm hearing here a little bit of like thinking systemically or, or um, you know, it's like a shift in a mode of seeing as mm-hmm. opposed, you know, the, the, the individual operator kind of Newtonian, you know, cause and effect, but that you're thinking more in terms of systemics and relationships, focusing on relationships. Is that right? Like I'm... No, I would say, I would say that's right. And I think systemic view, a mm. system 
awareness is critical to being a stakeholder leader. Let me give you an example, but it's not, it's not sufficient, but it's critical too. It's right. like a necessary um, aspect of it. Um, so I have a client and it's been a real, it's been kind of a tough year with them. And it's a tough year because um, their entire, they got, they got new owners, new, new private equity owners, and their entire executive staff, nearly, maybe 70% changed out. So my champions, my partners, I've been working with them for six years. Um, all of a sudden, I lost my partnerships at the top. And it was big clients, like 50% of our revenue was a big freaking deal, right? Mm. And I found myself going from being related to as a partner. Now we do coaching work, we do leadership development, we do strategy work, we do culture work, we do all these things, right? So we're not this big, big work to be to be strategic partners with. Coaching is one of the vehicles we use to accomplish our work. And and all of a sudden I was being related to as a vendor. I call it vendorized. Now mm-hmm. Technically speaking, I've always been a vendor, right? But I, it never occurred for me I was a vendor. I was their strategic partner. And I used to do things like, man, we did a report on investment, a, a return on investment report. You know, it took like 100 hours of my team. But I was so proud to give it to them. I said, look what your investment has made. You know, and it looked across like all sorts of different levels. And, and I... And I did that and I did that for the new owners so they could have, or the new executives so they could have an understanding of what we did. And they looked at it and they thought I was trying to sell more. Mm-hmm. And they, they didn't even read the whole thing. And then they started, so here's what happened to me as a vendor, okay? I went, okay, I started an act consistent with being a vendor. So I started to charge for every half hour you know, whereas I stopped thinking about them at night, you know, we're in the past, I'd stay awake thinking about what they were, I was so passionate about them. I was like their biggest advocate. So I became a vendor. Mm. They, they weren't being a stakeholder leader with me and they lost a partner. Now over time, because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I always do my own work on myself, right? Is we've been growing in our relationship. And they actually said the other day, okay, you know, as a vendor, I said, I mean, I, I don't mean just a vendor, I mean a partner, right? So we're, right. So we're, we're growing in that. But why I say system awareness is necessary, but insufficient is you can have a real system awareness of how things move and impact. And it's like a precursor. But then how do you then make of different aspects in the system your partner for a future that's creating shared value? Mm-hmm. Right. right. You know, so we had a call with the same company and one of the regional um, people. Um, one of the things we were doing was we were, we were looking at different aspects of the system and we were looking at the stakeholders. So we said, you know, have you guys really looked at how the governing structure, how being private equity owned impacts the condition, the system in which you are trying to cause results? 
and they hadn't. Now, these are people maybe three or four layers down, just hadn't been educated on it, hadn't looked at, well, what's the difference between being private equity owned or family owned or um, publicly owned? And we started to talk about, well, what is a, what are your owners concerned with? You know, they're concerned with seeing a return on their investment in this three to five year horizon. And, and we really started to share with them and they began to see the possibility of, oh, okay. They started to see the polarity, right? How do I be both oriented towards their healthcare, you know, quality care and ensuring a return on investment of those who have infused capital into our system? Mm. And then how do I think of each of those? How do I begin to create a future where each of these two stakeholders get their fundamental cares addressed and get to make a contribution to that future? Mm. Right. And that's one of the big pivots that I'll work with CEOs on is sometimes they'll see their private equity owners as the stakeholder mm. rather than one stakeholder. Well, you know, this is where I get a sense of like how it can open up or increase revenue as well, because um, you're not just seeing people um, in a limited way, siloed way, you know, but you're seeing the relationships between and how we can create a mutually beneficial shared future. And I mean, even the idea of like competitors and, you know, opponents and might change. And you might even think about the, the stakeholders of your stakeholders and then I can imagine that opens up really new areas of, of business or value creation. And at the same time, it's also like infusing the system with a kind of, um, I don't know how to put it, but it's like the shared good, you know, we're all looking out for each other when we're getting out of that kind of like mode of like who can make the most money and beat the competition in the process, like the race to the bottom screw the environment kind of thing so i can i can get a sense of that paradigm shift you alluded to at the beginning as as people start to shift the way they see what being a leader is and what leadership is yes yeah exactly exactly yeah yeah we work a lot with private equity healthcare. not not on purpose it's just you know when referral begets referral and all of a sudden you go wow really in this niche right <laughs> yeah right the niche happened to us yeah, yeah. and it's, that, it's like it's even more niche than that it's like private equity healthcare you know who's one of their main strategies is acquisition right, right? <laughs> so so it really shows up there in the valuation and even in increasing their multiple right which is really important so if you look at, well, if my, I'm not actually, I'm not actually serving my shareholders if I only go after increasing profit. Because what happens is as you acquire, or you merge, there's different company cultures. You know, if you have like a family owned business and you, you're a private equity owned business and you acquire that family owned business, the values that I mean, it's just so their reality is so different. You, it's like, right, and they're just gonna have these really like awful tensions, right? Family owned, it's like about legacy and family values and impacting the community. And you know, private equity is a bit more mechanical and technical, and it will feel more cutthroat, right? So, even though you may be doing the same service, 
it's a wholly different shift. So what happens if unattended to from a stakeholder perspective, like what are your fundamental cares and how do we create a future in which both are addressed, right? If not attended to in that way, you lose incredibly talented leaders and providers who have, it's not just, it's, it, that's one thing, but then they're the ones with the connections in their communities, mm. right? You know, right. so then losing market share and then the deal doesn't, you know, really see its value. So part of mitigating, you know, de-risking the deal is to actually come about it in a stakeholder leadership approach. And when you have increase in leadership effectiveness, that increases the multiple of the business. So you get a higher valuation when you sell. So it is really does serve the shareholders to pay attention to the stakeholders. Yeah. Um, I'd love to ask you more about how you coach people in this way, because I can imagine that there's an educative process, you know, um, this is what it is, and this is what's possible, and this is why it's so important, and and so on. And then you also talked about, you know, deconstructing people's notions of what leadership is. But I'm just curious about what that looks like when you're in the room. I know it's an impossible question in a way, because of course, it's this is a big, I get the sense, the breadth of what you're talking about. There's like multiple lenses you can look through. And also every client is unique. But I'm just wondering what it looks like in the room when you're with a client. I'm imagining it might be different than sometimes what people might consider a coaching type conversation, even though there might be a lot of similarities. I don't know. You know, I guess I'm trying to wonder what it's like. What are you doing in that in that room? Yeah, you're right. It's it varies a lot. But one conversation I've had actually three times a similar a similar conversation. I'm thinking about three different CEOs and three different companies. Not all healthcare, actually. Um, and there's a there's something that's similar about them. Um, you know, one in tech. It was a technology, and he he uh, recently sold, he changed private equity owners, right? So one sold in the next and one that's, you know, a bit more aggressive bought. And, and I looked at him, I've been coaching him for three years and, you know, he was like the least energized that I've ever seen him. Right. And he said, well, how's it going? Well, everything in the business is like going great. I mean, I'm kind of like, I got to figure out what my role is. Cause I, I developed my executive team and, you know, these private equity, you know, my new owners, they have this playbook and da, 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 you know, and I just kind of sat there and it's actually quite a normal coaching move, you know? And, and I thought, well, what, not so much your role, but what's, you know, what's your, what's your purpose right now? Right. Cause I mean, he had created this great purpose and what happened is that the involvement of his new owners was all about making the next deal. So he himself had got sucked into the perspective of one stakeholder, right? Because CEOs, you look up and you see a governing structure of some way, right? So he had gotten sucked into his job had now become about increasing the valuation of the company, you know, increasing equity, right? So that when they left, they could make 
make money on it. And, um, and so pulling him out to, to actually recreating his purpose as the architect of the future in which these different stakeholder cares kind of coalesce. And then we began to look at, well, what's, what is, you know, for your company, right? Or for your role, for what, for what you want to create here, you know, what is it that you, that, that this company uniquely could be promising and providing and creating value for your employees? What does this company uniquely provide value for, you know, and, and we kind of went around, you know, and looked at each of these stakeholders and he started to light up about what he began to see as the future, the holder mm. architect of the future. Mm. Yeah. And he began to create in this technology firm, um, building connections in a disconnected world. Yeah. But he saw that, you know, as he began to see what that looked like and that, um, that start, he then began to see, well, other companies would want to, you know, this begins to be a place where smaller companies that we want to acquire can line up with values. And that begins to increase the, again, the, you know, that's the path for, for the uh, ownership structure. So it becomes, it actually can get to be really exciting. You know, how do these different pieces come together and, and what's possible expands dramatically. I had another CEO, new CEO, she's a COO and she moved into a CEO role. And, um, and that's one transition, but then again, really began to get sucked into what the PE firm wanted, right? And so, and so, you know, helping her see that the result is what she's on tap for, for her stakeholder, but she's not just on tap for the result for her owners. She's on tap for the result for her clients and her customers and her employees. And it's her job to create the method, right? And, and you know, there's some of that is taking a stand. So then, you know, a third CEO um, who loves the game of increasing profits, you know, began to see that he needed to lead his executive team and his board of directors into taking a stand on, well, what kind of company are they going to be? Are you going to be a company that lives and acts out of a stakeholder capitalism model, stakeholder consciousness, or are you going to be profit for profit's sake? And like, just even asking that question, like, what stand are you going to take? Who are you going to be? You know, it is incredibly empowering for him to make that stand, right? And then what does that do? If you're making a stand that you're a stakeholder-oriented company, what does that mean? What, how does that shift the choices you're making, the strategies you're taking? Mm. A third company, we have um, actually in the animal performance business, animal minerals, agriculture, has a family-owned structure. They're a global company, but they're family-owned. And, um, and the family really cares about social issues. So they've, you know, they've, they have an answer for that. But what they don't have an answer for is environmental issues. And they're in agriculture, right? Which is like one of the biggest environmental, you know, mm. Impactors, right. like, yeah. 
So could you imagine the competitive advantage if they got themselves an answer to the environmental question? And it wasn't like, yeah, we're figuring that out, but yeah, we have that handle. Who's going to want to line up with them? It's a huge competitive advantage. Mm. So there's coaching in that, you know, in, in just asking questions, what, what's your answer in the social domain? What's your answer? You know what I mean? Or I, I don't know. I don't even ask that question. It's just looking from that perspective, like what's truly your source of competitive advantage by looking at each of these different stakeholders. What I can hear in what you, the examples is both where, you know, um, there's a pure kind of coaching, like with the first guy, you know, that, you know, he's down on his energy. He, he's normally very passionate. There's something happened there, you know, that is some inner work can help him reorient, reorient his um, orientation to, to the parent company and, and find his autonomy and vision again. Uh, but I also hear there's like strategic work going on, you know, in a sense, it's like, yeah, that you're looking at the relationships uh, between different stakeholders. And, and um, so, so I, I hear both of those together. And I think that sounds like it's an important, you know, I know we've talked about that in the past, that actually, you were like on the lookout for coaches who weren't, you know, who, who, were, who could expand their sense of what it meant to be a coach. And, and um, just one of the comment is like I hear in the, in your examples is like there's like an evolutionary impulse inside of it that, you know, if you look at history, it seems like we're trending towards more, more justice in the world. I know it might not seem like that at times, but, you know, you know, we look, we had the feudal systems and, uh, and slavery and things. And, and then we've, you know, all these different movements that have come out in the, the last hundred years and. So there's a tre certain trend, and I and I I feel that in this, you know, that there's like it's for the good, it's for the common good, not just for the for the you know the select few. And so, um, yeah. And it's not that's that's embodied in the people too, yeah. Like it's not yeah. just a, an abstract idea, but when that when that first guy could articulate his stakeholder vision, you know, it lit him up. And there's a way that can be in Kairos time brought into the world you know so i'm kind of like trying to weave it all together a bit yeah i love take it i love the way i was just thinking wow he's doing a great job weaving this all together I'm glad he is. Right. <laughs> yeah and you know we're really clear sometimes you say well is it okay for a coach to have an agenda i don't i don't you know i see that in a different i see that in a couple of different ways like i don't have an agenda of where to get you but I think it's okay for a coach to have a paradigm and a level of looking and a model or a methodology or core principles. And I'm pretty clear about that up front. We come from a stakeholder approach. You know, this is the orientation, the questioning, because it's impossible to say that you don't have one, you know, unless you're like a monk after 20 years or something, you're truly, truly empty. I mean, we can get ourselves to that place, but you have an angle always, you have a, you have a perspective, you know? So I say, look, this is, you know, our perspective, our model, our principle, our orientation is that when all stakeholders thrive, profits rise. And you can count on me to be continuously expanding your view beyond yourself, hmm. <laughs> you know? And you, and companies hire me to increase business outcomes. 
So what's my agenda? Increase business outcomes. That's what I'm hiring for. An hour, and I'm not going to do that if, if there's not an opportunity for me to bring who I am at my core into those conversations. Now, I will tell you that we've had some real tough um, choices to make with different clients over the years. And that is, can we do our best work here? And if, you know, I have one company in which, by the way, you mentioned you were looking for coaches. I got so many um, reach outs from our last podcast. So thank you. And we've got quite a pipeline we're coming through right now. So <laughs> my invitation this time is, is really if you, and I'm going to tell the story about this, if you are a coach that wants to amplify your coaching in a system, to consider partnering with us to support the elevation of that culture and strategy towards a stakeholder approach so that it can amplify the coaching work that you're doing. And mm -hmm. here's why I say that is we had, um, we had another client, a, a fairly large one, and my coaches were starting to get burned out. You know, the myth of Sisyphus, yeah, like keep that big rock, trying to roll that big rock up the hill and it rolls down. Mm -hmm start over and rolls down and start over. And my coaches were beginning to feel that way. It was like their intellectual, emotional, psychological, energetic, um, blood, sweat, and tears poured into this client system because they care. And they were getting so frustrated and disheartened be in a system where one person couldn't move the needle you know and so coaching had become more about how do you survive in this system rather than truly thrive and move the needle on things that are most mm. important mm. and so we had to and what we did is we brought that up to our um to, to our executive sponsors and said look we can't work here anymore unless we're able to work with you on shifting the leadership culture uh the leadership and culture in particular we work at the intersection of leadership culture and strategy but leadership and culture such that you know there's alignment there's integrity and there's an opportunity for these leaders to express that which you're asking them to do because our you know there's so much in the condition and the system that is suppressing these leaders thriving and our coaching them is burning out our coaches to simply keep them retained at your company and it's not fulfilling for us anymore. Hmm. And so we're in a conversation about renegotiating our contribution. Yeah. 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 I think that there's, there's a lot of that going on too, you know, where coaches are helping people in organizations survive rather than there being a systemic change that helps people thrive. Yeah. 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 There's also OD work, it, you know, so if you say, look, we really want innovation and, and, and empowerment and you, you don't share information, you don't distribute authority, <laughs> you know, you have to ask 17 people before you can try something new you know, that creates this incongruence. And then you get to coach the person who's hearing this message, but surviving in that structure. 
and you're just, you're just not going to win. So sometimes as coaches, if we have an over-reliance on the individual will and commitment can, can win the day, then we're really blind and we're not as effective if, if you know, cause we have to see that the system actually does impact that as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. So my invitation this time is look, if yeah. you're in that kind of situation and want to, you know, have us partner with us to actually shift that, um, you know, I, I invite you to, to call out for that reason. Yeah. Cool. Maybe that's a good place to bring our conversation to a close um, with a, with a good call out like that. So um, yeah, I feel like we, in a way we'd like touch the surface of perhaps uh, this topic, you know, I imagine, I feel that there's, more we could talk about and we've covered a lot of different territory today and uh, again like it's been a lot of fun i really appreciate your your passion for this work actually yeah thank you for giving me a place to express that passion yeah thank you for that (laughs) you're you're, you're welcome for an hour thank you (laughs) thanks for listening to the podcast I just want to take one minute to tell you about our live online coach training program, which is now enrolling called The Power of Embodied Transformation. It's really about how do you you wield the power of embodied change. Thinking alone won't work. Thinking our way towards transformation is not enough. So much of what we've become, our habits and tendencies, our blind spots, patterns of reactivity, live in the very tissues of our body. So in any transformational work, we need to descend beneath the mind, however brilliant the mind is, so we can access this transformational arena. That's what this program is going to teach you how to do. It'll teach you how to take your clients on a somatic journey of transformation through an arc of transformation from how do you help your clients create embodied commitments? How do you help them to recognize these embodied patterns that are living them in a compassionate way? How can you help them begin to open up their embodied life so that they can begin to embody new ways of being that help them thrive in what is most important to them? And also, we've got this extra module in there this year, which is about how do you support your clients who are coming to you and they're dysregulated? The pandemic's on. There's a lot of things going on in the world. People are dysregulated. Some clients are coming in displaying signs of trauma. It behooves us to become sensitive trauma sensitive in these times so what kinds of interventions can you make how can you be as a coach that can help your clients in those moments it's a lot in there in this program we've got an incredible faculty we have people like richard strozzi heckler the grandfather the founder of the somatic coaching lineage amanda blake a brilliant teacher who can teach about embodiment and the neuroscience elements of it we've got david trelevin author of trauma sensitive mindfulness Stacey Haynes, an alter star master somatic coach from the Strozzi Institute. Deb Darner, who is an incredible teacher of how do we apply polyvagal theory in the work we do with our clients. And Dan Siegel will be teaching. He's a real pioneer, founding father of this field of interpersonal neurobiology. So just a few more things I want to say. What do you get when you sign up? Well, you enter into this trajectory. There's 18 live workshops 90 minutes long each, and they are very interactive and experiential. The teacher's going to be there doing coaching demos, answering questions for you, taking you through exercises. You'll get four integration sessions where you really practice what you're being taught. Everything is downloadable, 
and transcribed so you can really immerse yourself in the learning and there are six bonus recordings pre-recorded featuring people like Peter Levine, Rick Hansen, Wendy Palmer, Stephen Porges, Bessel van der Kolk and Elizabeth Stanley. So how can you sign up? How can you find out more about it? Well you want to head to coachesrising.com forward slash power of embodied transformation. That's coachesrising.com forward slash power of embodied transformation. Enrollment is open now and the program runs from the 4th of March this year to June this year. It's 2022. Just a, a heads up again, if you're not on our mailing list and you want to stay in the loop about other things we create, then head to coachesrising.com. Put your name in the sign-up box there. You'll also find some of our other offerings, our online trainings for coaches there. And... Just want to end by wishing you well, and I'll see you again next time.